you'd like to open your Bibles and read with me, I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And therefore is one excuse me, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. It is good to see you this morning. It's always good to be here and able to worship with uh, those of like precious faith. When we look at the uh, world of religion, we have often heard the statement made about being one in Christ. Can we be one in Christ? I think maybe that's the question we ought to be asking ourselves. And I think that we can find the answer in the Bible. Of course, many people in the world uh, would teach a thing that they call unity, but in actuality it's just a union. There's a difference between the two. And when we look at this phrase that has come to be known in the religious world as unity in diversity, that statement represents one of the most dangerous and evil doctrines that the world has known. And it has invaded the New Testament church. It has invaded the Lord's church. And as many people throughout the world come to have less and less respect for the authority of the Scripture, terrible things begin to happen in the world. They begin to accept without argument denominational tenets. Not only do they begin to accept denominational tenets, they begin to embrace them as their own. And we see that throughout the world. We see it again even through, uh, through the church itself. When that is done though, when we look at this idea of unity and diversity, when we, when we see that, it tells us one thing. When Christ made His prayer, recorded in John 17, 23, that uh, we be perfect in one, or when Paul, in his letter to Corinth, when he made the plea to them to be of like mind, be of one mind, having no division, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, when those things happen, and we begin to embrace this uh, heresy of unity in uh, diversity, Christ's prayer and Paul's plea are blasphemed. They're ignored. They're thrown to the side. And when we look at the world in general, and we're talking about the religious world, those who, who claim a belief in God when, when Scripture is often quoted and application is made, and then we come to the understanding that God demands a lifestyle change for some of us in some way, and, and, and to all of us in general, right? Right? before we obey the gospel. 
that is often disparaged as just legalistic and narrow-minded, just kind of swept under the carpet. Even in our own time, in our own place, things go on in our own city that threatens the unity of God's people, not just our city, but it is happening throughout the world. But there's one thing we can rest assured and understand and have complete confidence is that God is still in heaven. Jesus is still sitting at the right hand, the power position on His own throne, and the Bible is still the gauge by which we must pattern our lives and by which we will be judged in the last day. And it is exactly the means through which we will be saved. John 12, 48. I believe the great Apostle Paul understood that. I think as we look at his teachings and we uncover the great truths that he has left for us, I believe that he understood that that was the gauge by which we are to live. When he made this statement, he said, For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. He said, Wherefore I beseech you, be, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent, sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. <clears throat> he goes on to say, and, and this is the point we're making, as I teach everywhere in every church. There was no such thing as unity in diversity when it came to the New Testament church in the first century. And nothing should have changed, but it has. I believe the Bible is clear in its teachings on unity. Christ prayed for unity. Paul taught the necessity of unity, and God demands unity. It's not just a good suggestion. So then we must ask the question, Is the people of the world united in Christ? Is the world united? Are we one in Christ as a whole? There are over 7 billion people living in the world today, and do we have 7 billion adherents to the one gospel that Paul taught in every church? Well, of course, the answer is no. It's impossible because there are too many differences existing within every single one of those organizations. So we have to filter through all of that and we have to understand what's being taught and we have to find the church that Paul's talking about. We have to look in the New Testament and we have to say, can I discover this church of which Paul preached? The one where he said, I have to be a member of that body if I'm going to get to heaven. Christ taught one doctrine and Paul repeated that in his letter to the Ephesians. Now if that's true, then we have to ask the question, can we really be one in Christ? We have the answer. Fortunately for us, it has been provided for us if we're going to be able to be one in Christ, there's only one place where we can go to find the answer. It doesn't matter what Rick says or anyone else. It matters what does the Bible say. And again, fortunately for us, Paul has laid it out for us. I want us to notice that Paul is 
going to present something to the reader. He did that in his letter to Ephesus. He is doing it to us because it has been preserved for us. We're going to notice Paul makes a plea. He presents a plan. And then we're going to notice the plainness of the Scripture. And let's begin with his plea. In his letter, Paul acknowledged something that is foundational to being able to be unified with each other in Christ. Notice what he said. He said, I am a prisoner. Well, what's so special about being a prisoner, Paul? There are a lot of prisoners in the world. There have been a lot of prisoners in the world, right? Well, when we look at his first imprisonment in Rome, from where he wrote this very letter, we look at that, and we notice that he was a prisoner, but I don't believe that was his intention. I don't believe his intention was for us to recognize he was in jail. I think what he was talking about, he was a prisoner for Christ. That was his main intention. Oh, he was in chains, provided courtesy of the Roman government. He was in chains because of the trouble that his fellow countrymen had provided. Oh, he was a prisoner, he was in jail, he was a convict. But he was a prisoner for Christ. He was in jail, courtesy of the Roman government, because of what he stood for in Christ. He was in jail because of the problems created by his Jewish brethren because he stood up for truth. He didn't believe in unity and diversity. He believed in being one, being united in Christ. That's why he was in jail and he was in prison because... He had dedicated himself to a lifestyle for which he was being punished and for which Christ had given his life. He was a prisoner. If we're going to be one in Christ, we must be dedicated to the possibility that that might happen to each of us one day. Now, of course, we're going to pray that doesn't happen, but if that comes along, am I going to be able to stand up like Paul did and say, I am going to do what Christ asked me to do. You know, we've been warned. Christ warned us that that might happen. He said, Matthew 10, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. It's not if we're going to be hated because we're Christians. It's when will that come about. Well, it's when we obey the gospel, right? It's offensive to people. It's offensive to people when they hear... Someone say, well, Paul said there's one body. He said there's one spirit. There's one this or there's one that. That becomes offensive to people. That's never our intention to offend anyone. But God's Word is one of the most offensive documents in the world. Not offensive unnecessarily, but offensive because people refuse to accept it. To be one in Christ... We have to be willing to do that no matter how we're treated. We're not going to be treated well in this life because we're Christians. And Paul acknowledged those truths and he encouraged the brethren to live up to that standard. He wanted them to be able to get to heaven and, and be there. And he did it in such a way, as we read the letter to Ephesus, he did it in such a way that would encourage success for them. Now I want us to understand, and I want to be clear about this, Paul did not change 
the doctrine to fit the audience. He didn't do that. But he did do some things. He said, he, he said I'm all things to all men. That has to mean something, right? Notice, notice that statement, 1 Corinthians 9.22. He said, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So what's he talking about? He didn't change the doctrine. Because we already noticed that he taught the same thing in every congregation of the Lord's church. I think the man could connect with those around him. He could connect with someone wherever they were in their life. To the weak he became weak. To the strong he became strong. To the educated he could talk about education. To those who worked hard with their hands he could talk. He knew about that. He was a tent maker. Right? He could talk about, he could identify, he could connect with people in their lives where they were. And that's what we need to do. And Paul is doing that in this letter to the Ephesians. He's connecting with them and he's using the proper approach. That's what we have to do. If we don't do that, we're in danger of losing the audience, right? Those to whom we're trying to reach. Now how did he go about doing that? To ensure that the Ephesians would be able to acknowledge that they too needed to be a prisoner for Christ. He approached them with the right attitude. Notice what he said. He said, I therefore beseech you. That's not a, it's not a request. He wasn't asking them anything. A request would have placed him on equal footing, right? With your peers. You ask your peers for something. That means you ask, you, you demonstrate something that you need and they can choose whether or not to provide it because we're peers. But notice also he didn't make a command. He didn't command them to do something. That would have placed him in a position of authority over them. Now we have to understand as well, he was in a position of authority. He had the authority, just like he told those in Thessalonica, and I left off the passage here, it's 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. He said, I command you, brethren, and he began to talk about withdrawing from those who walk disorderly. So he could make a commandment. Do you remember what he told to those in Corinth when they were having some issues in the church and he asked them a question. He said, do you want me to come to you with the rod of an apostle? What did he mean by that? Do you want me to come with authority to punish? Or do you want to heed the letter I'm writing? So he had the authority, but that's not how he put it in the Ephesian letter. He didn't ask, he didn't command. He said, I beseech you. He was begging. He placed himself in an, in an inferior position because that's what the situation demanded. He was all things to all men. But what was the point of being all things to all men? So that by all means I might save some. So he's wanting to save those in Ephesus. He's wanting them to continue to be faithful See, he was pleading for unity and he did it with the right attitude. He did it with the right heart. And he did it because he wanted them to be saved. 
Often we've heard the statement, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. I think we see that in Paul. Paul was an absolutely magnificent Christian gentleman. I would have loved to have been able to have spoken with him. We can be right academically on a position, but yet we might be wrong in attitude. And that's a problem, isn't it? We need to be correct in our attitudes. We need to be able to present the truth in love, Paul told those in Ephesus. Now if that happens, if we're right academically, yet we're wrong in attitude, we can't have unity. That's going to be a unity destroyer, right? And again, I'm not indicating that we placate those who are in opposition to God's Word. I'm not indicating that we ought to change the doctrine to fit the audience. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having a spirit of love, an attitude, when we need to take the weaker position. We might even have to take the stronger position. There's no telling what we might have to do, but we have to do it in such a way that we can reach those individuals and we can, by all means, save some. The psalmist said this, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133.1 You know, some things in life are, are good, but they're not pleasant, right? Some things in life are good for us, but they're not pleasant. Some things in life are very pleasant, yet they're not good for us. But unity is both good and pleasant. And that's what God requires. And it was for unity which Paul begged. He beseeched, let's have unity. But we have to have more than just a plea, right? He made a plea for unity, but then he presented a plan on how to carry that out. That's our second point. He began with our walk. What's our walk? He's talking about lifestyle. In fact, he's talking about our way of life, how we live our lives. Right? Do we live our lives in such a way that promotes unity? Do I live my life in such a way that when I reach out to those around me, they can identify Christ in my life and they're more apt to listen to me because I live what I speak? I encourage someone to attend services of the Lord's church, yet I live in such a way through the week and they notice that, that they're not interested. That happens in the world, doesn't it? If we're going to be united in Christ, we have to begin by addressing the way we live our lives. That's what, Paul, that's what God demands. Paul's way of life did not contradict his teaching. That is paramount. Do you remember when the Lord asked, He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet you do not obey me? We come before God and, and we claim a righteousness toward God and we don't reach that level. Some claim a devotion toward God and they never reach what they claim. They're going before God and they're calling Him Lord, Lord, yet they're not doing what He asked them to do. Paul told those in Rome, He said, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? You're a teacher and you're teaching someone on how to do something, yet you're not listening to what you're teaching. You need to teach yourself. He said, You who preaches... A man should not steal. Do you steal? What about those who you tell not to commit adultery? He goes on to say, are you committing adultery? He looks at those and he says, 
You teach that you abhor idols, yet are you worshiping an idol? Are you, are you living what you're teaching? Don't make a boast of the law, but then you go about dishonoring God. He says don't do that. What's he talking about? He's talking about those who claim to be faithful, yet they're hypocrites. That sounds like the Pharisees of Christ's day, doesn't it? He called them, he said, you're a bunch of hypocrites and snakes. You claim one thing, yet you do another. You claim a love for God, but you're trying to destroy His Son. An organization may advertise themselves in the business of bringing glory to God. They may advertise themselves as a, as a light sitting on a hill trying to direct the world to God and all the while they're doing exactly something else and the world sees it. And they look at that and they say, well, why would I want to be a part of that organization? They claim a love for God and they're, they're living like Satan every single day. But Paul encouraged his brethren to walk faithfully, live a lifestyle of faithfulness. He did that, didn't he? We remember his comment to Timothy toward the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, 6, he said, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. He went on to say, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. He said, I kept the faith. And because of all of that, he said, there's a crown of righteousness waiting on me, not just for me but to everyone else who loves the appearing or looks forward to the appearing of Christ. See, we have to be very careful about our example that we live, but we have to be careful about whose example we follow, right? That's, what happening, that's what's happening in the world. These, these people get together and they form organizations and they claim to be an example that we ought to follow, but we need to check them out. Anyone who stands before us claiming to bring about the words of life in the Bible, we need to look what they're saying and compare it to what the Bible says. We should never take the word of anyone. I'm talking about myself as well. If I'm teaching something wrong, I want to know about it. We have to be careful. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. The Bereans... They searched the Scripture daily. They wanted to make sure that what the Apostle Paul was preaching and teaching was absolutely in accordance with God's laws. Christ is our example. But those who follow Him, those same people can be examples for us to follow. It's what Paul said, Philippians 3, 17. Let's follow those examples. Now we're given a whole host of examples of the way we're to walk or the way we're to live in this life. We're to walk in the light. We're to walk in the fear of the Lord in the steps of our father Abraham. We're to walk in newness of life. Paul said we're to walk after the Spirit by faith in Christ. And as Christ, we're to walk after His commandments. That's what John said. In our text, Paul said we're to walk in worthiness. We better walk in worthiness, right? Now Christians are to walk appropriately. That's what he's talking about. Let's be worthy 
of our calling, of our vocation. We're to do it even when the, when the world that hates God doesn't want us to. We're still to walk worthily. Paul warned, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 10, he said, you can't get out of the world. You can't get away from fornicators and, and evildoers and things of that nature. He said, if, to get away from them, you'd have to go out of the world. You can't go out of the world. But we better not be conformed to the world, right? We're not to talk and walk and dress and behave like the world behaves. That's what he's talking about. Christ commanded, Matthew seven thirteen and 14, He talked about the two choices, a straight gate and a wide gate, or a, a narrow gate and a, and a wide gate, a broad gate, a broad path, a straight path. He said, not very many are going to go in through that narrow gate, but a whole lot are going to go through the broad one. And so we're either being transformed for God, we're, we are following His example, or we're following the example of the world, and they're all going through the broad gate. Only Christians are going to go through the narrow one. He said we're to walk worthily of our vocation. We know what a vocation is, don't we? That's our work. That's what we do for a living, right? I, I fixed wrecked cars for 20 years as a vocation. And I had to do it right. Because if I didn't do it properly, the body shop down the street got all the business, right? And so I wanted all the business. Therefore, I had to do it properly. I had to pay attention. I had to invest time and effort. So when we're talking about the main vocation by which we ought to be concerned and, and by which we ought to involve ourselves... Should I be dedicated? Should I pay attention to what I'm doing? Should I investigate? Should I learn? I was always learning about new paint techniques and, and things like that. Do I need to be learning all I can learn about what the Bible says for me to do in this life? That's my vocation. That's the main vocation. Now, of course, we have things in this life we have to be concerned with for our secular vocation. We have to be able to provide but our main vocation is our spiritual one. Jesus said, Seek you first the kingdom of God, and these other things will be added to you. We have to be careful, don't we? We have to put the effort in this vocation. Our main focus in life better be the next life, right? And when we begin that vocation, there's a process, right? God gave us a plan of salvation. We're to, we're to obey that plan of salvation. That's when we begin to walk this new vocation. We read about it in the Bible. Jesus said, you have to believe on me. If you don't believe on me, John eight twenty four said, you'll die in your sins. We have to repent of past sins. That means when I come to the realization I need to follow Christ, what I've been doing, I have to get rid of that. I have to change. We call that repentance, Acts three nineteen, Confessing that Christ is the Son of God, and recognizing Him as my Savior puts me unto salvation, Romans 10.10. And then I go down into the water, just like the Ethiopian eunuch did. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and the eunuch submitted to baptism. And what did that do for him? The same thing it did for Saul, the man who became Paul the Apostle. 
It washed his sins away, Acts 22, 16. And then I began to walk in a new life. That's my vocation. And that's what God expects. But still, there's a question. Can we walk in unity? Can we all be one in Christ? There was a plea and a plan. But can it happen? I want us to notice the plainness of Paul's words. Paul talked about unity and organization. He said there's one body, and that is absolutely foreign to the denominational world. I don't know of anyone that will ever say there's only one body. In answer to the confession that that Peter said Christ was the Son of God, he said, Matthew 16, verse, beginning with verse 17, he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. He said, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's singular possessive. That's one. I'm going to build my church. But we get over to this statement made in John 15, verse 5, and, and people read that, and he talks about the vine and the branches, and they say, well... Christ is divine and, and the branches are all the different organizations in the world. We're all believing and loving God and we're headed to heaven. We're just going a different way. So that's a misuse and a misrepresentation of that passage. The vine of which Jesus makes reference is the body, the church. He said, I am the vine. Christ is the head over His own body. His church, Colossians 1.18 the branches are the individual saints who make up that one body. How do we know that? Well, when Christ made that statement, there were no churches in existence. He couldn't have been talking about denominational churches. They didn't exist. They weren't even there in the world. He was talking about the one body He would build, and He was talking to 11 men sitting in the upper room when He made that statement. You are the branches. The individuals make up the one body, the church. He's not talking about various organizations who claim Christianity. He's talking about the one New Testament church found in the Bible. Plainly, Paul said there was one body. He said there's one spirit. And it is through the spirit that we get the plan. And we see the plainness. He brought the message. And we know that He's going to bring only one message. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. God's not of confusion. He's not the author of confusion. Whether it's in worship or whether it's in the plan of salvation, whether it's in any aspect of this one body, God has delivered the same message. You see, there were saints in Corinth. There were saints in Ephesus, Galatia, Rome. That's the plurality of churches. It's congregations of the one church. That's why Paul could teach the same thing in every church. It was unity. Paul said there's one hope. There's one hope which rests in Christ. And there's only one hope. In speaking to the Ephesians, he said, prior to becoming Christians, he said, you were, you were apart from God, having no hope in this world. Ephesians 2 verse 12. You see, hope involves a desire and an expectation. We need to desire heaven and we need to expect we can get there if we follow God's commandments. 
He also talks about unity of organization, but also unity of revelation. He said there's one Lord. That's been revealed to us, right? We don't have multiple gods. No other person can be Lord besides Jesus. He is our Lord. It was foretold in Isaiah 53 and, and other places of the, the torment and the abuse he would take prior to going to the cross. Job said that he knew one day I'm going to have a mediator. He was talking about Christ. He didn't know Him personally. He didn't know how it would come about, but he knew one day God would provide a, me, a mediator. There's one Father. There's one Spirit. There's one faith. There's never been more than one faith prophesied. Now, we're not talking about a personal faith. That's not what Paul means. He's talking about the gospel system of faith. And that's what Jude was talking about. He said it's been delivered once for all. There's not coming another system of faith. From the system of faith, my personal faith is produced. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans when he said from faith to faith. He didn't mean from the old law to the new law. He said the system of faith will produce my personal faith. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. There's one faith. Paul said there's one baptism. It's a sticking point in the religious world, right? It has been revealed to us that baptism has a specific purpose. One of those purposes, Galatians 3, beginning with verse 26 is it puts us into Christ. We're the sons and daughters. We're the children of God. By faith, Paul told the Galatians, and remember, he was writing to the church. We are the brothers and sisters by faith. And how do we become that? For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If we're not in Christ, we're certainly not going to receive those spiritual blessings. That one baptism revealed by Christ prior to going to heaven. How are we to be baptized? Immersed in water? Overwhelmed? Plunged? Dipped? Covered up? It's a burial? We're to be baptized by the authority or in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit so that our sins can be washed away? Acts 2.38 places us in the body. We just noticed that. It saves us, Peter said, 1 Peter 3.21. Gives us a clear conscience toward God. God desires and commands unity among His creation and we can be united in Christ. We've noticed the plea, the plan, the plainness of the Scripture. It's there. We just have to want to do it. If you've not considered those things, do that today. Consider what Paul has talked about in the other New Testament writers. How we become a Christian through the plan of salvation of which we spoke. But God's also made a plan for those of us who've obeyed the gospel when we, when we make mistakes in this world. How do we step back into the light? Repenting of those sins, confessing them to God. And it may have to be done in a public way depending on how I've sinned, right? But if you need that, If you need the invitation of God today, whether through initial obedience or whether coming back to Him, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.
mercy can't be cleansed and be set free. There our Savior gave his life's blood, made a way for you and me. But the time is swiftly passing, leading to eternity. There's a fount flowing now and will cleanse every stain. Come back home, pilgrim, come. He is calling your name. We've no promise of tomorrow or to see the rising sun. Won't you hear his tender pleading? Welcome home, my child, well done. Soon this life here is over. Sinner, what will be your fate? If you wait till he calls you, it will surely be too late. Have you made your preparation for that great eternity? There's a fountain gently flowing, and it flows for you and me. There's a fountain. <laughs> flowing now and will cleanse every stain come back home pilgrim come he is calling your name we've no promise of tomorrow or to see the rising sun won't you hear his tender pleading? Welcome home, my child, well done. Be seated, please. <coughs> please turn to number 80. Eight zero. To prepare minds for the Lord's Supper, we're seeing the second and fourth verse. Number 80. For me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my soul shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them 
his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I'd like to read this morning from the King James Version, 1 Corinthians 24 through 29. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthy shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthy, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not disconcerning the Lord's body. Our Heavenly Father, we come thanking you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather around thy throne and to partake of this bread. May we partake of it in a worthy manner, in Christ's holy name. Amen.
In a like manner, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this cup of which Christ said, this is my blood. We ask you, Heavenly Father, if you will help us to think back to that cross and the sufferings Christ went through on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This completes the Lord's Supper, and we're also commanded to give as we've been prospered. Our Heavenly Father, we come thanking you, Lord, for this opportunity today to give back a portion of that which we've earned. May we give it cheerful and without worry. May we always give this to the Lord to help provide the church with funds to go, go on. Forgive us, Lord, of our sin. For this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Please turn to number 112. 112, we'll sing the first verse, then we'll be dismissed. If you would, please stand. <clears throat> strife.
and read my title clear. I know, I know, my name is there. I know, I know, my name is written. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for this opportunity we've had to come and study another person of their word and offer up prayers in behalf of those that, that need it here at this congregation as well as the, around the world. We thank thee for the White Oak congregation in its steadfast faith in teaching your scriptures. We pray that we will be supportive of that throughout the world and we'll have the means to do that. We thank thee for the effort that we've uh, applied to helping those out in Texas and Louisiana and, and down in Puerto Rico for the, the benefits of to the devastation of all the hurricanes and the storms in the past year. We pray that we'll still continue to pray for them and, and not forget that this has been only a short time in the past that this occurred. We pray now that you will be with each of us as we depart and we'll be back at the next appointed worship hour. This prayer rests in Christ's name. Amen.